0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, home man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, June 7th, 2012. This is episode 917 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, Today we're going to do a show on gardening and permaculture. A little bit different though. These are going to be like, I think it's like 10 or 11 or 12 of the questions that I always get when I lecture when I do workshops, when I do videos, and when I do podcasts. Uh, and it's not that they're bad questions. It's just they always come up. And if they always come up, then that means a lot of people have them. Because here's what I've learned. For every person that asks, how do I, or what about, or what if, there's about a 100 that have the same question that don't speak up and don't ask. And that means if you get a question five or six times a month, there are literally hundreds of people that are struggling with the idea, and then this is the bigger one. That means to me that there's probably a couple thousand walking around that think they have a grasp on it that didn't really understand what you were saying because when that many people ask you, it usually means you haven't explained it well enough to make it fully understood. So there's people that think a little bit more chess like a little bit more advanced, a little bit more to that second level. And they're going to take it to the second level, which is as an educator, it's what you want. You want your students going on past what you're teaching to what you'll be teaching tomorrow, so that when you teach it tomorrow, they've already rattled it around in their head. And, and that's great. But you get in a show like this, and it's varied and it's not structured. It doesn't keep going forward. Sometimes things wane and go away. But sometimes if they're going forward, and you don't go forward with them, and you didn't do a good job. Again, that means I didn't do a good enough job explaining it, and they think they've understood it. And then you go out to somebody's site, and they say, look, I've put a swale in, for instance. And you go out there, and you look at the swale. And this is the person that really listens all the time. And that you go look what they've done, and they have this sort of ditch-like feature that they've created with a backhoe that happened to be available. It's packed t- tight to the ground. It's not on contour. It doesn't have a sill. And it's only about, you know, maybe 25 feet long. And you just go, that's... That's not at all what I intended. And it's not the person, it's you as an educator. So my feeling is when these questions come up all the time, that means that I have work to do to better explain them so they're fully understood. So that's what we're going to go through today. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one, Sawtooth Tactical. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated in the, in the Sawtooth wilderness of Idaho. That's where the Sawtooth part comes from. Uh, I'll tell you what, all the stuff you could possibly want for your tactical lifestyle, you will find at Sawtooth Tactical. Magpul Magazine's uh, SOE tactical gear and everything else you can think of, and the cool, I think they are the only distributor of the really awesome titanium spork. I had a question yesterday about what I learned on the Appalachian Trail when I was, uh I was still a kid. Let's just call it a kid. I was 20, 20 21 years old. I spent 90 days hiking the Appalachian Trail. And as I confessed, it's really more like 80 days on the trail and 10 days in hotels. And, uh, you know, you just get off and get a really good shower and a really good meal and, and watch some TV and, and, you know, go to a bar and have a beer and, and then go back to what you were doing. And it was fun. But, you, you know, they said, well, what did you learn by that? And I said, you know, I had a lot of support. It was long before my survival thinking mindset really picked in. And it was just to get my mind right. But you know what I would have loved to have had thinking about it now? The titanium spork. It would have done everything that I needed out of my mess kit, and I would have only had one utensil instead of multiple utensils, that and a a knife, and I would have been good to go. Check it out. It's really cool. It is like 40 bucks or something like that, but it's completely made out of titanium, so it's probably worth that half of that in the titanium uh, alone, and it's just awesome. Check them out today, sawtoothtactical.com. Next up today, ready-made resources. Hey, what more can you ask for from a company? How many companies out there, like if you look at the name of the company, you go, okay, I know what they do. And then they actually deliver on their promise and do it. Ready-Made Resources is one of the few that does that. All the resources you need ready-made, ready to go for your prepping, point, click, buy, sent to your house, and always done with great service uh, and great pricing from people that really care about you and people that are like you. You know, Bob Griswold didn't get into, uh, and he's the guy that owns, Robert Griswold owns Ready-Made Resources. He didn't get into... Survival and preparedness as a business because he thought it was a hot industry to be in. He's not like a lot of these Johnny come latelys that have jumped on board. He was doing this long, frankly, long before I was. And he was doing it because he is a prepper himself. And it evolved into a business because he's practicing his passion. He's doing what he loves, he believes in preparedness. For himself, his family, and his community. He believes in it for America, and that's what Ready-Made Resources is all about. So if you want to deal with a real community member, check out Ready-Made Resources today for anything you need for your prepping needs. Next up today, uh, remember you can connect to me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I have been doing a kick-ass series on permaculture, doing almost a video a day on the iPhone. I've had some problems with the audio and the lighting and the... Whether it's HD or not, and how long I can do a video for before the iPhone will let me upload it. and One came out upside down, and I had to fix it with Vegas. But it's, it's run pretty well. There's nine episodes. Check it out today. Go to uh, survivalpodcast.com, click on YouTube, and pull up the Permaculture series. A lot of the questions you're going to hear today, uh, I've been helped out with by people watching those videos and saying, Hey, what about? So uh, check it out. Facebook and Twitter, you know I put a lot of stuff on there that does not make it on the show just due to time constraints. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And remember, Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty, or Prior Service. Send me an email before you join. Put military discount in the subject line. And tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. I got an email yesterday from a guy. I won't give the full details, but basically he was working with first responders day to day in dangerous situations. But his job wasn't what you would typically think of as a first responder. as was a building inspector. But he was a guy that would go in with the first responders on rescue missions or after, uh, you know, what do we do with this building type thing? Go in and look at it and determine whether the structure was still sound and things like that. Hey, he said, you know, would you would you give me a service discount for that? Hell yeah. So if you think you're doing something like that, if you're actively out there putting your ass on the line for our country, either at home or abroad, hey, I will hook you up with a discount and thank you for your service. All right, with that wrapped up, let's get into um, today's main subject. And I kind of want to lead off with, once again, for especially new people, Then maybe you found the show. You put in survival podcast. Is anybody doing this at Google? And you found us and you started listening. You're like, this guy's okay, but man, he talks a lot about gardening, man. And this is, I wasn't looking for like Howard Garrett, the dirt doctor or something like that. You know, I'm looking for survival, man. I want to know how to, how to get guns and I know how to defend my home and I want to have wilderness skills and I want to, you know, I want to be ready for the apocalypse. You know, and this guy's talking about growing tomatoes. Listen. I, I can't make it more fundamental for you than this. The, one of the very first things that people start to do when they, they get into the preparedness mindset, after they freak out and they calm down a little bit, is they say, okay, let me be rational about this and let me start thinking about what I need to do. And inevitably, there's self-defense, so guns and ammo, there's water, there's food, and there's do I bug in or bug out? Do I stay put or do I go somewhere else? So sheltered. Right? And then they start thinking, well, I gotta be able to cook this food so there's an energy component. But those five survival needs always come in. And you don't have to have anybody tell you that, right? If you sit somebody down and say, stop freaking out, stop it. Just stop it now. Stop freaking out. Think about the fact that tomorrow, many of the systems you've come to rely on are not here. What would you need to be able to get by until the systems got restored? And they'll come up with those five. Well, I need to protect myself because other people aren't going to be prepared and I might want to help some people, but I can't help everybody and I need to be able to defend myself from those that would take away from my family. Okay, so I need a defense. Uh, I need to be able to feed everybody. I need to make sure everybody has water. I need to make sure we have a roof over our head and we need to be able to have some source of energy to stay cool or warm or cook our food or purify water, things like that. They're going to get there. Anybody's going to get there. Okay, well, food is the critical linchpin. Because water I can fix for you for you know 30, 40 bucks worth of containers and fill it up, right? And then every so often, dump it out, and fill it back up again as long as your tap works. And you can store hundreds and hundreds of gallons of water that way for next to nothing. Shelter you're either going to have it or you're not. You have to have a plan to go somewhere else if you don't have it anymore. But I mean it's it's pretty cut and dry. Defense may very well be necessary but it's necessary far less often than eating. You will have to eat three times a day roughly, depending on how you eat and how you manage your diet. If you're me, it's more like one and a half now. I paleo works. It's awesome, guys. I I didn't start out that way with it, but that's where it's led to. Um you you're, you're going to have to eat every day of your life. Right? If you have to defend yourself with a gun every day of your life, you're counting the sand coming through the hourglass until you have a bad day and the other side has a good day and you're dead. Right? You're in trench warfare World War 1. But, I mean, and it, can we ever go there? Yes, I'm not saying we can't. But I guarantee you, tomorrow, you're going to want to eat. And I guarantee you, the next day, you're going to want to eat. And, and the next day, you're going to want to eat. So it's the most fundamental of our needs. We also have to look at preparing ourselves for very different scenarios than Hollywood and doomsday preppers and this new stupid shit. Spike TV's got a new one coming out now, guys. It 's like uh, last family on Earth is what 's going to be called they want They send me a casting call. They want me to ask you to go be on the show i, I 'm not insulting my audience 's intelligence by asking them to go be pimped out and made to look like a bunch of idiots by some Hollywood jackasses right but i 'll tell you the premise you 'll compete with other families to see who 's more determined and more tough, and the winner will get a free bunker. I mean, look. <laughs> If you want me to give you reason to put an underground shelter in, if you live in the southeastern United States, turn on the Weather Channel and watch some documentaries on tornadoes, and I'll give you a reason to put in an underground bunker. It's not that I'm saying that stuff's not got a place, but it's also beyond the means of a lot of people. But food is either not beyond your means or you're screwed. It's cut and dry, and we need to be able to feed ourselves. I also look at my job to be kind of like a fire marshal. ...with emergency preparedness, right? So a fire marshal will come out and do these these public briefings and workshops and teach people to deal with fire. And if there's a fire, here's the evacuation places. And if there's a fire in your home, here's the plan that you're supposed to have. And if you have a two-story home, have a way to get out of the windows because you might not be able to get down the stairs. All that kind of stuff, right? This is what you do when there's a fire. Call 911. Have a family assembly point. Here's how you can have uh, simple things like fire extinguishers. If there's a fire, this is a level of fire that you could probably put out. This is a level of fire where you need to get your ass out of the house and get your family out of the house because you're not going to be able to stop it. Don't throw water on a grease. All that stuff, right? But that's all the stuff that once the flame starts. But the the biggest responsibility that fire chief and public fire officials have, the ones that are public-facing PR types, is what? Let's keep you from burning down the forest or your house in the first place. So, using fireproof materials when we build, having smoke detectors so fires can be addressed before they're a big concern, fire suppression systems in commercial buildings, good practices, not smoking in the house, on and on and right? Okay. When you cook, don't do this stupid shit. When you have a forest, you're out in the forest camping. Only burn when there's not a burn ban, in effect. Only burn in designated areas. Make sure you clear the area. Make sure when you leave, the fire... Right. So that's that's a big part of my job, is to keep the fire from catching or at least spreading in the first place. If there's a panic, there's going to be disaster and riots. Even if the panic is false, people will freak out and do stupid shit. Right? If there is a situation where food is suppressed in the the delivery system, but pretty much a neighborhood can feed itself for a few weeks and it's going to be a a problem that's going to last a few days, then you don't have a disaster a riot and a panic. And everybody can look after each other. So that's why I spend so much time on this, because I believe if we can get everybody in America with the means to anyway, growing just a little bit of their own food, we're putting a fire suppression system into effect for many of the disasters that we feel. So if you think this doesn't apply to survivalism, it's because your mind is too narrowly focused right now. And you think you get, and this is the big thing, you think you get to pick your disaster. Disaster will be an economic collapse. It will come quickly. Gold and silver will be the the monetary unit of choice. Everything will break down. It will, just stop, stop. If you're doing any scenario like that, it's going to be a coronal mass ejection. It will shut down the grid. When the grid shuts down, it will, you don't know. You don't know. And tomorrow, you could be looking headlong at a disaster for your family. Both of you have lost your jobs. Being able to feed yourself might be a good idea. So that's where all this stuff comes from. So now that I've kind of got a little off track, but I just want to set the, I want to set the stage, because I, I know some of you guys wane on this stuff, but some of you guys eat it up, you love it. Well, let's get into the part that people eat up and love. One of the big things that has come up a lot since I first had Paul Wheaton on the show, and he talked about gardening without irrigation. He talked about a bunch of different ways to do it. He talked about culture, Which culture for the new people is where we take wood, and one way or another we bury it in the ground. Or we pile it up on the ground and we cover it over with soil. And we plant into it. And that wood develops over time. It begins to rot and decay and becomes wet and spongy. And, and basically creates a reservoir of water so that the plants in that bed can grow without irrigation for extended periods of time, where they normally would not be able to, okay? So it's a way of putting a large amount of organic matter that has absorption capabilities. And in the first year, most of that wood doesn't break down very much, so it's like a second-year forward system. Well, when he came on, one of the things he said is, you're much better off planting your plants from direct seeding. Seed, put your, prepare your bed, stick your seed in that bed, and let it grow and I've had people say well I've done that and it's worked beautifully and I've had people say I've done that and I can't get anything to even start which one is better and, and the answer is, is in most things with permaculture is it's usually not it's A or B it's it depends and I'm gonna try to help you understand what has to happen if you want your seeds to grow in the ground where you plant them there, there's there's a few big enemies of your seeds when you plant them straight into the ground one is predation, whether it's insect, bird, or mammal. You know, I've plant I planted corn before, and I, I planted the corn, and I knew and it's in this bed, and it's spaced every foot, and it's you know it's two rows of it, and it's this little clump of it over in this polyculture thing I've got going on, and uh, I've come out the next day, and I've seen little holes, and I, I just see the pattern. That's that's where I planted the corn, and what it is is a raccoon or a possum has come by. And a freshly planted corn is laying there in the ground. It's been watered, so it's start, there's a good smell. And they just go in and they dig out all the kernels and eat them. It, it, I've seen it happen, right? So you know that's one. What you, you plant your seeds, and something comes by. And if it doesn't, it wasn't real obvious that it was dug up. It could be gone. I started some squash seeds one time, and uh, I had them in a little six pack. And it was warm out, so I just had them out on the porch. We had the pergoda with the shade, and also I had these. Uh, this is uh, actually a type of pumpkin, and one comes up. And the other five just don't come up. And I put two seeds in every cell, and they were fresh seeds. And it, you know, squash and pumpkins and gourds are just so easy. You normally would direct seed those, but I was having some cutworm pro- cutworm pro- cut- cutworm problems in the garden. I thought this would just be an easy way to get them going and get a nice root system and throw them in the garden. They'll be fine. So finally, I'm like, what the hell's going on? So I dig down in the the five cells that didn't grow. There were no seeds. A freaking chipmunk! that was living in the rocks around one of our gardens, came up on the deck and dug the freaking seeds out and was eating them. He just liked that particular variety. And the way he was doing it, it wasn't like he was sitting there like digging them up like a squirrel digging up in a nut. Apparently he was just kind of getting them out. And the only way I know is I caught him in the act. And it was very difficult to tell, especially since we were just hitting the seedling trays with water, that he had done that, but he left everything else alone. But he ate those. So it can, if it can happen in, in your, your little cells, right, it can definitely happen, you know, out at the garden. So one way we can combat that when we're starting our own seeds is to take our seed trace in the house And as soon as they break soil, put them out into the greenhouse, a sunny window, a grow light system, whatever, but leave them indoors in kind of a sunny window area until they at least start to push the soil up. That that would be one way to do that. But So we have to worry about that. So the the question then becomes, well, well, how much of this is going on in my area? So there's times where if you have enough of a problem like that, then that's the only way to get your seedlings up. And then you know the permaculture purists will say, but you know if you leave everything in balance, and you know it doesn't always work that way. And when you're growing six beds instead of six hundred beds, you know sometimes those two dozen plants are really important to you. So basically, the answer is whatever works best. There's some other things though that cause a lot of problems when people do hugel culture, and I'm going to tie this right into the next question, so we keep moving along here. If you do hugel culture, doesn't mean you never have to water. And the answer is absolutely not. It does not mean that. And also, I mean, think about it this way. If I go out and I build a really great hugelkultur bed in June in the south, and in the dry season in the south, so let's say May, June, July, and then I plant into that. Even if I used wood that's already started to decay, okay, where, where is the water that's going to form the reservoir going to come from? We need lots and lots of rains, So ideally, a hugelkultur bed is going to work best if if you prepare it right before the rainy season and let it charge up. And if it's in its first year and that wood that's in there hasn't begun to decay yet, well, you're not going to have that much success with it either. There's a lot of other things about hugel culture. What we do here versus what they do in Austria. What step is made real. Step culture is made real popular. If you watch the video I did yesterday, I'll put a link in today's show notes. It'll explain these different types of hugel culture and what hugel culture really is versus what we're really doing over here. But one time you absolutely have to be irrigating when you put in when you're planting into a hugel culture bed, unless it's raining like every other day or something like that. It's really, really the wet season is when you plant seeds. Even if there's a nice big wonderful reservoir of moisture, you know, once you get an inch below the soil, if you're planting a seed in the first half inch of soil and it's sitting there dry, it might as well still be in its packet. Seeds need lots of moisture until they germinate and send down those roots. So the, the reality is with hulu culture, it doesn't mean you'll never have to water. It means that a well-developed bed with well-developed plantings will have to be watered far less frequently. And in some instances, depending on what you're planting, what your climate is, how well-established things are, whether you're growing perennials or annuals, you may never have to water it. it. It always is a depends answer, but you're not going to break it by watering it. Don't think that way. So when it comes to starting seedlings... I would always prefer to plant my seeds into the soil where they're going to grow, if possible. That is the best option, but it's not always the best option given the circumstances. Here's a big reason why, though. Almost all plants, even those with very shallow root systems, will send down some sort of a taproot, some sort of a deep root that's designed, and maybe a couple of them, that's designed to get way down there and get the plant through periods of time where things are a lot tougher, where things are drier. When you plant plants in a pot, no matter what kind of pot it is, even a soil soil block where there's no pot, but it's just a block of soil and the roots self-prune, when they go down to a certain point, they basically break or stop growing or start wrapping around. When you plant them into the ground, they will begin to send down their deeper roots, but... They'll send their roots off. Imagine, you know, look at your, your left finger, like your pointing finger, and then, like, right where your first knuckle is, like, bend it over, like you, that was cut off right there, and then a new root comes out, and it just doesn't have the power. It doesn't have the ability to exert force that the original root did. So you're get much sturdier, hardier plants with no transplant shock if you can get them to grow from seed. Well, what's your growing, duration of your growing season, etc.? And one thing Paul says, and I don't agree with everything Paul says, and don't take what I say to be gospel or what Paul says to be gospel or Holtz or anybody for that matter, is that, well, have you ever had a volunteer come up, like a volunteer tomato or a volunteer pepper? And, and when they do, when it happens, and it's a, not a hybrid, you know, when it's an heirloom variety, it grows strong and big and I mean, you don't even have to touch it and it just comes up all by itself. And, it does great. Well, that's proof that seeding in the ground works better. Well, it's not really, because where did it come from? Uh, usually, it's not that one seed fell out of a pepper while you were picking it. It's when you, when your pepper plants were done for the year. You know, some of the rotted peppers fell into the garden and you just covered them over and let them be, which is a good idea. Well, if there were three or four peppers, that's four or five hundred seeds, and if three or four volunteers come up, that's that's around one percent. So the top one percent of hardy seeds grew. Now that might be a great way to select seeds. That might be an awesome. You just take every year, take you know five of your your California peppers toward the end of the season, let them go right to the frost where they get frost damage, and and put those fruits to the ground and mulch them over and see if anything comes up next year. But it doesn't mean that the seeds that you've saved or get from your seed company that you're you know that you're gonna get the same results unless you plant four to five hundred of them. All right. So. The reality there is, is it depends. And whatever you get better results from is the way to go. And there's nothing wrong with doing both. And that's a great technique. Seeds are cheap. If you want a dozen of some kind of plant, plant a dozen of them in seed trays. And then as soon as it's climatically acceptable, plant them into your beds and see how they do. Um, the next one I get all the time when I talk about hugu culture. How long does the wood last with hugu culture? You know the answer already, right? It depends. Uh, let's say you use sweet gum, which is basically like balsa wood, right, and, and white pine, and it's a very moist, humid climate. Two, three, four years, most, right? Say you use oak and hickory that has not already begun to decay, and a climate has a distinctive wet and a distinctive dry season, and it goes through those cycles. Um, and it's not the tropics, it's not the humid tropics, it's, it's temperate, it's cool to warm temperate North America. 12 years, 15 years, 20 years, depending on what you're planting, how much rain there is, how big you start out the beds, how much wood, et cetera. But a, but a long time. Let's say that you're building these beds, and into these beds you're planting hardy perennials that generally would survive without a lot of irrigation anyway, once they're fully established. If you have 10 years of hugu culture to help the plant establish and it's a, a plant that lives eighty years or a thousand years like fig trees or something like that, or olives or you know uh, cane fruiting things like raspberries and blackberries and currants and stuff like that that tend to grow in the wild without support, and you've given them a decade of this amazing system to get the roots not only into the system itself but deeper and the soil ecology and you're practicing polyculture and all forever because by the time that system's established. Especially if it's done on contour or done in conjunction with swaling or whatever, it, there's, there's no sense in tearing it apart to rebuild it. So it all depends on what you're planning, what you started with, how big it is, and what your climate is. But for most of us here in North America, the answer is at least 10 years. So don't worry about it and do it and see what happens. All right? um, the next one is, how can I do contour-based design if my land is totally flat? Right, my land's totally flat, Jack. It's flat. It's level. You can look for a mile in all directions. We live in Kansas. It's flat. It's flat. The, the 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 simple answer to that is no, it's not. And you'll you'll argue with me. You'll tell me no, it's flat. I guarantee you, if you go down to Home Depot, right? And this is not the way to do this, by the way. But if you go down to Home Depot and you buy a level, a big long level, like a one meter or longer level and you lay it on the ground in front of you, that bubble ain't going to sit in the center. And if it does, if you turn it 90 degrees, it ain't going to sit in the center then, unless you're on a deck or a porch or a patio that was leveled. I'm sorry, your land's not level. Uh, you know What Jeff Lawton said when I asked him that question was, the only thing le- completely level on, on planet Earth is a the bed of a salt lake. You ain't growing nothing there anyway. Uh, when they did their design in the, the deserts of Jordan, Near the Dead Sea, which is yeah, you know, come on, right? So uh, if you're getting close to, to, to the salt lake beds you can get without being in one. There, um, when when they did their design there, they ended up putting in several kilometers of swale on, on ten acres. Now it looks flat, but it's not. And if you want to see this for yourself, build an A-frame level and just start walking off contour lines on your property. You'll you'll see that there's contour there. And people say, well, when it rains, the water doesn't even move. No, the water's moving. It just doesn't really look like it's rushing to you. It's moving. Water always moves at right angle to contour. It might move deceptively slow. In fact, the beauty is if you are on a relatively flat slope, you could actually do things a lot more effectively with contour. It's easier because you you need much less uh, aggressive structures to accomplish the same thing. So... The big thing with how do I do contour-based design swales, contour garden beds, anything like that. Put my hugo culture mounts on, on contour or whatever on flat ground. Is your ground's not flat? Your ground isn't flat. I, I'm going to hear from people, and what I want you to do then for me is I want you to make an A-frame level, and I want you to walk it more than four rungs without finding a contour line. And if you can show me a video of that. I'm likely to come out to your property and see what the hell is going on, but I just don't buy it because I have never found it to be the case anywhere that I've gone that ground is actually flat. It looks flat, but there's these subtle contour lines. A quarter degree of pitch is still pitch. Level is an absolute state. I I think that's another thing that people need to think about when you're doing uh, contour-based design. It's not level enough. It's not almost level. It's not good enough for government work, as the old cliche goes. It's level or it's not level because water will always find what level really is. So when we do a swale, we want the, 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 the top of that swale level. We want the sill that allows the water to come out down on the, on the left end. And if any of this doesn't make sense, go see my permaculture video series. It's all explained and drawn out on a whiteboard. right? So that has to be level. And the bottom of the ditch has to be level. right? And it actually takes a lot of work to get that right, but once you do it, it's a done deal, and it works magnificently, but your land isn't flat. Um, The next one I get is, how do I deal with clay soil, sandy soil, etc.? Plant whatever will grow, and keep throwing the organic matter that's being produced on the ground, keep mulching, keep adding organic matter, done. Uh, That's Here's the reality, right? If I go deal with somebody that's got like a sandy loam, a really sandy loam that doesn't, it's kind of gutless and it just doesn't have the ability to really hold a lot of moisture. It, it's very a land that would be really difficult to build upon. It. They look at the guy that's over there going, "I got this compacted clay soil and it gets wet and it stays wet," and they go, "God, I I wish that I had his land, right?" And then the guy with the clay soils going, I, "I I wish I had sandy loam." Grass is greener syndrome, right? Well, the reality is that whenever somebody tells me this, I'll say, do you have any woodlots, you know, around your area? And, you know, unless they're in the desert, right? And the desert's a different environment, okay? It really is. It's a, it's a harsh environment. It requires specialized knowledge and But if you look at Greening the Desert that Lawton did, you'll see you can do those types of things there, but they're going to require drip irrigation, and they're going to require some significant earthworks to make happen, but they can be done. But in most of these instances anyway, you know, I have this gray, you know, sandy loam, or I have this black clay or red clay, and then you you go – and you look at like a Google, you say, give me your address, you know, and they say, oh, I don't want to tell you my address, someone come and steal my tomatoes that you don't have because of your bad soil. But I say, okay, fine, what city do you live in? And they tell you, and you pull up a Google Earth shot, and he send them a Google Earth shot of their own city. I go, please explain to me all of this green stuff I see growing all over the, I don't mean lawns, right? I mean all these wood lots and undeveloped land and all these trees and bushes and stuff that are growing there. And they say, oh, I don't know. He say, okay, who do I want you to do? I want you to take a field trip this weekend. I want you to go to some parks and woodlots and stuff like that. I don't want you to go on the trails and stuff. I want you to get a couple feet off the trails where, where stuff's just growing. Wild native plants are growing. I want you to pull the leaves back, and I want you to dig into the soil and take a picture of it and send it to me or, or send me an email and tell me what that soil's like. And the results are always the same. It's amazing soil. It's the same dirt under your feet. It's the same clay. It's the same sand. What's different is it's got a root structure in it. It's got life in it. Okay, There's things living down there. And it's got organic matter incorporated into it and on top of it. And I don't think in most instances we really need to turn soil. What we actually need to do sometimes is loosen it. So if it's possible, something like in its small acreage, it's something like a broad fork. And a broad fork is looking like a great big pitchfork with two big massive handles on it and you step it into the ground and you just rock it back and forth and then you move it and you do it again it just breaks up the ground. Maybe we have to rent something to, to, you know, a piece of equipment to come in there and rip or break the soil. And sometimes that's necessary, but even usually that's not. If we just start planting all kinds of crap and whatever grows will be what the soil needs. If you have compacted soil, right, and you leave compacted soil alone and you don't do Anything with it. I can tell you that docks and dandelion and wild mustards and wild radish type things and wild carrot like Queen Anne's lace, I can tell you that some of the first things that are gonna pioneer that piece of ground are gonna be those things. I know it. I, I don't I, I, I I'll bet money on it. If that soil is truly compacted and you don't touch it for a couple years, you'll come back and find that kind of crap growing everywhere. Why? It has a long, penetrating taproot. And it's exactly what that soil needs to be opened up. And, and that'll grow there. If you have loose, sandy soil, then I can tell you that shallow rooted species that can do well in times of, they need moisture, but once established in the wet spring, they'll do well in times of drought, right? Like lamb's quarters, right? Are gonna show up. And it might, it might be purslane. It might be different types of succulents or cacti if you're closer to a desert, right? It's gonna. It, you're going to get things like raspberries or blackberries, depending on your climate, what's native to your area. They're going to grow there. Why? Because that soil is loose. It's too loose, and it needs something with a shallow root net to stabilize the surface so that the nature can begin the building process and the regrowth process. And both of those areas, if left alone... Given enough rainfall, we'll begin the succession toward forest. I know exactly what's going to show up first. I know what's going to show up second because that's what the soil needs. So if you have that type of soil, if you have clay soil, then the best thing you can do is bring in dandelions. Don't call them weeds. We'll get to that question in a bit. Right? Dandelions, mustard, uh, and you can, you can bring in more conventional crops that mimic these things, like oilseed radish. Uh, like daikon radish. These, these are, these penetrating plants will put these huge root systems down. And things, the beautiful thing about the radishes is they'll put the roots down and then that's not a perennial like a dandelion. It'll die. Or you can cut it. You can get a yield out of it. And you leave that root in the ground and that root will rot. And then more of your shallow rooted species will begin to be able to take over. So the way that you deal with any soil is you grow what will grow there. Observe what type of weeds are growing here natively. Now, if I want to put something productive into that ground, I need to analyze that weed. How tall is it? How does it deal with drought? When does it germinate? When does it die? Okay. How does it spread its seeds? I need to ask, you see a lot of these questions, the way to get the answers is to start asking more questions. Of what grows here, what are the characteristics, traits, and needs, and outputs, and productivity of that weed species? Now, I'll go find something productive, I consider productive, that mimics that. And I'll, pl- I'll overplant it, right? If, it, if the, the, the seed packet, you know, if it's a cover crop, and it says, you know, plant at four pounds per acre, I'll put four pounds in a hundred square feet. It's cheap. I'll overplant it. So there's so much of it, the, the the weed species have trouble competing. In fact, it has trouble competing with. I might have to go in there and thin it out some. But odds are, because the ground's not really that fertile yet, that might even a lot of that seed is going to be lost. And birds will eat it. It'll blow away. It won't be wet enough. Only some of it'll land in the right place, you know. It, but it doesn't matter. I have four, five, six times, ten times what I need to get going with that. And is is that gross? You just chop it and throw it on the ground. And leave the roots in the ground. That's, if you want to stabilize loose soil or open compacted soil, the solution is dramatically the same. Leave the roots in the ground. The roots will make the soil suitable. That's I mean, it's hard for us to grasp because we're so addicted to roto, rototillers and shovels and things like that. Sometimes really compacted soil, we want to speed things up. We want production this year. We need to get there and open things up. But turning it over is almost always a bad idea, right? And there's some row crops and things. If you're going to grow a significant stand of corn or something like that, turning in the first season, a lot of times, it, you know, I can, I can accept that. I think I can get to a better place faster, but I don't think I can get to a first crop faster. So if that's necessary, I, I get it, even if I don't agree with it. So this ties nicely to the next question. I get a lot of this. If I put swales in, will they become weed beds? Well, first we have to define swale and ask what we're doing with it. See, it's it's always, it depends. And then the next question is, is that really a problem? So swales, big earthwork swales, true swales, um, two meters wide, one meter deep. So for non-metric types, call it two yards wide, one yard deep. So about three feet deep, six feet wide. And all of that material that comes out, that's a fairly sizable ditch. And that's on dead level contour. That ditch is dead level. The tops of that ditch on the back and front side are level. The bottom of that ditch is level. And at the end, we'll take at least a meter, maybe two, and we will push the lip down hard. Only on that end. That's a sill. So if the swale exceeds its capacity, the water will weep out over that sill and do no erosion. But the dirt that we pull out of the swale and pile up in front of the swale is loosely compacted. It's never compacted. It's not designed to hold water. It's designed to absorb water. And once it exceeds its capacity, it's designed to release water downgrade. Down into the soil and and a little bit across the soil and go down to its next swale. And then we're going to plant trees in there. Trees, shrubs, vines. That system is designed to create a forest-type agriculture. Whether it's a food forest that's designed to primarily grow food, a timber forest designed to grow long-term timber stands, whether it's a fuel forest where we're planting trees that are good fuel sources that can be composted or pollarded, which means we cut them at a certain time of year, we take a lot of the material out with us, we use that for fuel, and the tree grows back. And and there's trees that we can do that with for, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years without the tree dying. Right, And we see this in the northeastern United States. You know what? You see it everywhere. You don't even know you're looking at it. If you drive around in northeastern United States, a lot of times in the fall and winter, and look at people's front yards in suburbia, you'll see they had a great huge tree, and now it looks like a dead tree stump with a few sticks sticking out of it. Just a few, you know, it goes up, and there's four or five Ys, and it's been topped off, and there's nothing there. And you'll think, man, whoever did that ruined the tree. And then when you drive back through the same neighborhood in the spring, all the canopies are filling out again. And by the second year, that's huge, and you can't even you can look at the structure and you can see by looking inside, oh, this tree's been topped before, but the tree's actually fuller than it ever was. And then four, or five years into it, the the, the 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 tree trimmer will come back in the rotation to that customer and say, you want me to top your tree again? It's starting to get into the wires and your house and your roof, and the person will pay them to do it again. And then they'll do it again, and they'll do it again, and sometimes it's a three or four year rotation, sometimes a little longer, some a little shorter, depending on the speed of the growth of the tree. And basically, it's whenever the tree trimmer can convince you that your tree needs to be topped again. You know what they're doing? They're getting firewood. They cut all of that down, they split it, they stack it, and that's next year's yield of firewood. So, once they're done topping trees, they go into the wood selling business until spring comes. And then they go into their, you know, their routine maintenance. So that's how they run that cycle. So this is an example of a fuel forest being built all over suburbia that nobody's ever really realized is there before, except the person with the financial incentive to capitalize on it. Does that mean the tree trimmers scamming you? No, right? If you have wires in the front of your house and gutters and stuff, that tree probably needs to be trimmed. They're probably trimming it more than it needs to be, but with certain species, and these guys are usually pretty reputable, they're going to do no real harm to the tree. In fact, you'll get more biomass in subsequent years, which ensures them of a job and ensures you of a big, beautiful tree that's not hurting anything. Cool? Right? Well, we can build a forest like that. We can build a forest just like that. And instead of splitting big, huge logs, the beauty is if we cut these trees at the right time and right shape and and train them the right way, we can cut fuel wood, you know, sticks of wood that are a foot to two feet long, depending on what we're putting them into, that are about as big around as a man's wrist, maybe a little bigger or a little smaller. They don't need to be split. They're all ready to go. See? So we can build a fuel forest. We can build a forage forest, which is the primary design of that forest is to create forage for my wildlife or forage for my livestock. And we can build any system we want like that, but that's what swales are really for. So, In that system, do I care if weeds grow? Well, I have a huge forest growing around it which will eventually shade out most of my weeds anyway, when I know my weeds are reparative and stabilizing for the soil. And The answer is, in most instances, I don't really care. If there's certain things I don't want there, then the solution is always the same. Put something you do want there that mimics what you don't want there. So if it's a deep tap-rooted thing that's growing and you want something there that's, that's going to be productive and not a problem, put a deep tap-rooted productive planting in there. If it's a shallow-rooted, stop, top uh, s- uh, surface level, stabilizing plant growing there, uh, put a productive species that mimics that there. And that's always your solution to weeds. It's always easier to plant something in where the weeds are and occupy the space with something that mimics the weed that's showing up than it is to constantly try to pull the weed out. Because if there's a weed showing up, that means there's a space, and a space is going nature reports pours a vacuum. It's going to occupy it. And it also means whatever that particular planting that's showing up there is, is performing a function. It's stabilizing, penetrating, hydrating, creating a polyculture. It's doing something. It's not just there to piss you off. It really isn't. It's not just there to choke out your other plants. It's there because there's a need for it there. So you need to find something that mimics it. But in a forest system, generally speaking, it's just more biomass. Let it grow up as high as your head. And then go through one of your trop, chop and drop sessions and, and take a scythe or a sickle and cut it off at the, the, the bottom. Just throw it on the ground. It's, it's, it's free mulch for your emerging forest system. In a garden. Let's say instead of doing true swelling, we're doing contour garden beds with mini swales or micro swales in between them or just contour garden paths. So we create level paths between our garden, raised garden beds, double-reach beds, and they seep in. I just did a, a video on this, too, so you can get a better understanding of it if you want to in the series I keep mentioning. So we build that. Those beds can become a problem with weeds. There's a lot of ways to deal with that, though. One, we probably don't want much of anything growing there. So occupying the space with something productive may not really be that good an idea because we're going to be walking on it and trampling it and then only the hardiest, meanest-ass stuff's going to grow and most of the stuff that we consider productive isn't going to be – so we're going to have a weed problem there. So one thing we can do is when we put these paths in, we just go through and we lay down two layers of cardboard or we lay down newspaper. And if you do newspaper, do like – Sunday edition thick the entire way. Find a recycling place or something where you can get a a pallet of the crap and lay it down. And I know some people are worried about the dyes and inks, but permaculturists all over the world are using this stuff. Nobody's falling over and dying. I'm sure it's better for you than whatever you're eating from the store. That's a simple solution. And then put straw mulch, you know, a couple inches thick on top of that. And that'll, that'll hinder a lot of weed growth for a long time. Eventually it does wear out. You can replace it. Another thing you can get is a weeding, uh, a weeding hoe. Uh, with like a, a weeding hoe, like a rolling hoe. So it's got a little hoe uh, blade on the bottom and it's got a couple handles and you push it on a wheel and you just walk through your path, and it just cuts them off and just keeps, and keeps them clear that way. I mean, if you want to do the manual labor, well, you can do that. What I generally do is I don't sweat it. I just don't sweat it. The paths in between my beds I'm walking on all the time. When they get up to a certain level, you know, you, Certain stuff, it's really easy to hit with the weed whacker and knock it down. If it's anything that I can grab a hold of and cut with a sickle, I cut it with a sickle and I, just, you know, as long as there's no seed heads on it, I just throw it in my garden bed. It's mulch. I, I don't even care. And I think that so many people spend so much time fighting things instead of saying, well, what can this thing do for me? Which is what permaculture is all about. So, you know, again, just understand though, if something's growing in a place, Unless you absolutely want to keep that place sterile. If you want anything growing there at all, and you're just unhappy with what's growing there, find a productive mimic because it's telling you what that place needs. You're trying to grow a tomato in in a place, and the only thing growing there is dandelions, and your tomatoes won't succeed. Right? Deep tap roots are the answer. Tomatoes have big, massive top roots. Right? They're a desert species, so they do get some deep roots down there, but they don't have a penetrating root. Right? Maybe if you just leave your dandelions there for a season and come plant your tomatoes next year, they'll grow. They probably will. Right? Or maybe it's switching it up and putting some penetrating taproot species in and then planting something a little bit hardier than a tomato that's a similar planting that will give you some of what you're asking for that year, which is like a tomatillo. Much more hardy than a tomato, uh, a little bit tougher root system, and a little bit more drought-tolerant. And a little less nutrient-tolerant. So we can put that in there and then maybe, we, you know, so don't always try to keep doing the same thing over and over again. If it's failing, switch up your varieties and plant lots of different varieties, lots of polyculture. Just because the main thing you're supposed to put in there is a shallow root or deep-rooted thing, that doesn't mean not to plant other things in there with it that are, that are of the, the other type. And they'll work and share it between each other, share resources, share nutrient, help develop a fungal hyphae in, in the bed. Which brings us right to our next one. Do you need to inoculate soil to encourage fungal activity? This is not for growing mushrooms. If you want to grow mushrooms in your logs, you need to inoculate them. Uh, you, you, If you leave them there in a wet, moist, dark environment long enough, don't grow mushrooms. You just don't get to pick what kind. Whatever kind becomes dominant in that log, it will take over it, and you will not have any mushrooms that you can eat if they are not of the particular kind you wanted. So, if you want shiitakes, you have to inoculate it. When you talk about soil fungal activity, we don't really need to inoculate it; it won't hurt anything. You know, I mean, one easy way to get some fungal activity into your soil: go out into a forest area, take a little garden trowel, and take about a one-gallon bucket. And go to random places throughout the forest. Pull the leaves back and take a couple scoops of soil from each space. So you don't do any harm. Space this out and then put everything back the way you've, you found it. If you look at it and it looks like oh, I can tell something's been there. I don't mean to a tracker, right? I mean to the average eye, it's not good enough. Put it back the way that it was. Do things like pull up a log or a rock. Take a little bit of soil from there, right? And you can do that until you have about a gallon of this stuff. And into a you know a five by by 10 raised bed, mix in, just sift it all around about a gallon of that. You'll inoculate all kinds of life in there, but possibly some things you don't want. Some pest activity you may bring back. So do you need to do it? No, but it would work. There's all kinds of fungal hyphae and little life forms. But if you do everything we said today, you're mulching, you're growing multiple crops, you're, you're, you're using organic matter, the life will show up all by itself. If you watch the greening the desert thing with Jeff Lawton, which I keep referring to, it's one of the most amazing things ever done, honestly, in in an extremely harsh environment. But if you watch that, you'll see that about six, eight months after he left, the people that were managing it after he set it up and went on his way to do other things called him up and said, we've got a problem. And and, uh, he said, what, what you know? And they said, we have fungus, And they didn't even know the word for mushroom, so they were calling it a fungus. Well, they had mushrooms showing up in the mulch, in the desert. And the reason they didn't know the word for mushroom is they had never seen one before. So if fungal hyphae are going to form in the Jordanian desert, in a well-mulched, drip-irrigated, swell-based system, they're going to grow in your garden. They're going to grow in your garden. But I do think that it's something we need to pay attention to. I need to think about, because here's the big problem that most people, I think, have with really building soil fertility uh, in their gardens. You have a savanna environment, and your primary soil building methodology is forest-based. And what I mean by that is this. Most places where people plant gardens are in the suburbs. There's a shade tree over here and a shade tree over there, and most of it's open and sunny. And then we have a lawn. It's either all Bermuda grass or St. Augustine, or the enlightened person has a polycultured lawn with some weeds in it and threatens to shoot the the green thumb guy or the weed killer guy if he comes to their house and offers to to fix their lawn. But they have that open, right? And then they have the stand of garden, and it's not a forest-based system at all. It doesn't look like a forest Lots of the ground is open or it's simply covered by grass, savanna, um, you know, uh, what is the word on the prairie type, uh, growth. Now, in those systems in nature, the way that the soil gets built, the way that we got that wonderful topsoil that we've, we've frankly ruined in many cases in the Midwestern United States is that herbivores, deer, elk, buffalo, over in Africa, it's wildebeest and zebras and things like that. Come through and eat the grass. The grass grows three, four, five feet high, tremendous amount of biomass created. And they eat it and they eat it and they eat it and they eat it and then they crap. Right? And then they eat it and then they crap and then they eat it and they crap. And they actually because they're afraid of predators. Their only real defense of predators is to stay in these herds. And they stay very, very tightly together. So they they, they're paddock shifting all by themselves. So they'll they'll eat an area down to almost nothing and then they leave and they won't be back there for a year or two. To so that that one acre that that particular herd was 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 occupied, you know, there might be a, a herd of bison back in the day that would be an acre by an acre by, you know, a, a, you know, like 4 square acre herd. And it might totally wipe out 4 square acres. You go, "Oh my god, that's horrible." But no, they they go to another spot and then that spot will have years of regrowth before maybe that herd is directly on it again. And they leave all that manure behind. And that manure combined with that that cellulose that they crap out, breaks down bacterially. And in these open systems, without a lot of things to hold a ton of humidity in, it's a bacterial-based soil building, and it it needs cattle or buffalo or deer or something to eat and process the material to the ground. Or it has a very, very hard time growing. Because the grass, if it's not eaten, will eventually dry out... And dying, if it doesn't get enough moisture, there's very little fungal activity going on there. Now, over time, there's significant fungal activity, but the primary way that it breaks down is from, from, from bacterial with the, with the animals. Okay. In a forest, we don't have that. In a forest, we actually have much more biomass than a grassland. Think about if, if you've ever trimmed a tree, seriously given a tree a haircut, and you just cut a few branches off here and a few branches there. When you're done, how much freaking crap? You're like, I, I feel like I cut tr- And you're looking at all this stuff. You're cutting it up. Maybe get some firewood out of it. Having some stuff that needs to be shredded or hauled off. You're thinking, I feel like I cut three trees down. And all I did was cut four or five branches down. Now imagine how much biomass there is if that whole tree goes. Okay? And then think about if you've ever raked leaves. Right? You have one tree in your yard. Maybe a little bit from your neighbor's. And you rake bags and bags and bags of leaves. Well, in a forest, that's that's magnified a million times, and there's a lot more branches that self-prune and break off and fall over in a forest. So there's a huge, massive amount of biomass hitting the forest floor every fall. Little bits all through the year, but the fall, of course, is when the heavy stuff comes, and that lays there, and it sits in a fo- And a forest is moist; it's humid. Even And then the winter comes and the snow falls on top of it. And then the spring comes and the regrowth comes and starts to provide some shade, but you have this really long, wet spring. We have dark, we have wet, we have cool, and we have lots of organic matter. What are we going to get? Fungal growth. So the soil methodology in the forest is fungal-based. right? Well, why does that matter? Because we don't have ruminants moving through our gardens. We're constantly chopping and laying down organic matter and stuff like that. So we're trying to build our soil with a fungal based concept with a great big huge amount of light hitting the bed and drying it out for a lot of the season so we're trying to do a fungal based system in a bacterial based world so that means that we need to do a lot more po- if we if we start doing polycultures and a lot more tall planting so that there's some shade provided for our lower growing stuff now this is very very regional. If you live in Pennsylvania, you only get about two really dry months in the summer July and August and even then you've got this great soil and it's not that hot compared to Texas right In Texas you might get a dry season that starts this year and ends next year. So those are totally different scenarios. direct Sun in Pennsylvania for your for your uh, for, for your a lot of your plantings is going to be great. I remember we had marigolds in Pennsylvania, just, you know, common old marigolds, and like half of them just didn't really boom the way the rest did, and you can just look at the shade from the house, and the ones that didn't really take off got about an hour more shade. They got sun almost all day, but they got an hour or two more shade, and, you know, they just weren't getting enough sun, enough bright sun for the climate, for the temperature, and what have you, but down here in Texas, they can get half that much sun, and they do incredibly well. Why? Why? The sun's more intense, it's hotter, there's longer heat accumulation left over, a lot more light bouncing around from secondary sources and things like that. So it's, it's always situational, but in most instances, having your your gardens, even your annual gardens have high and low plantings and high and low root systems are going to do a lot to keep more humidity in place with shade and with, with being able to reach deeper in the soil and bringing things up and transpire things. And that's going to get more fungal activity in your soil. So the key to your fungal activity in your garden soil is more about polyculture and keeping the upper layers of your soil moist with at least drip irrigation and keeping some shade on it than it is with inoculating it. Because you're doing something that's not really optimized for open areas. It's it's an edge-based, forest-based, or deep forest-based activity. It's probably, you know... That's probably a collegiate level answer to a simple question, uh, but I want you to understand it. I mean, that's what, what I'm trying to do with a lot of stuff. Because if you understand it, then when a lot of these other questions come up, if you go back and base it on your understanding, start asking some more questions, not only will you get your own answers, you'll get better answers than I can give you. That's A good, a good educator wants his students to go past him. That, that's my goal is to create as many people that leave me in the dust as possible over time with all of this stuff. Which leads right into the next question. It's almost like I did this as an outline, and I really just threw it together, and wow, they just came together perfectly. I talk a lot about chop and drop. So this is where we go through, and we plant a whole bunch of apple trees and plum trees and nut trees and stuff like that into a swale system, for example, uh, building this food forest. But in there, we're planting support species, maybe alder, uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, a little bit of locust here and there. you got to be careful with that. Uh, acacia, uh, if you're far enough south, Lucena, Moringa, things like that. Anything that fixes nitrogen right, as a support species. So a legumous tree, and or even some legumous shrubs like uh, Gumi. Gumi berry is a great shrub to, to plant that fixes nitrogen. And uh, autumn olive is another thing, but that one is a little bit more likely to become invasive, but it's a good, hardy uh, shrub slash tree. Kind of fills both layers a little bit. And then at some point you go through, and just like we talked about, uh, people in the suburbs cutting the tops off the trees as pruners, we go through there and we do that. But, I mean, we don't do that when these trees are big and we need a ladder and a chainsaw. We go through there when these trees are six, eight feet tall, and we go there through the little so loppers or a machete and we just start chopping it and we start throwing that on the ground. And we can do that in garden situations with weeds and stuff like that as well. But the question is often, well, how do I know when to do that? Do I just do that whenever I feel like it? And there's actually, this is one that it really doesn't depend. There's an absolute answer to this one. And that is you do it at a time when rainfall exceeds evaporation. In other words, you do it in your wet season, right? It doesn't mean when it rains. Because a lot of people say, well, it rains a lot in the summer, but it rains. And then it doesn't rain for two weeks. And everything dries completely out. And you go in the, in between your rains and you feel the leaves in your forest and they're dry. And you have to go down a couple inches to find moist soil, right? But you go there in the spring or whatever your wet season is, because you might be in the tropics where your wet season, uh, is in, in, you know, in, in the summer, right? But wherever your wet season is where you pick it up and it's just, it's just stays wet, it's in that fungal breakdown time, that's when to drop it. Because then you, because you're taking the shade off, you're taking the protection off to accelerate the breakdown and the building of the biomass and the life in the soil. So you have to do it at a time when the plantings there can handle it. And shade is a much better preventer of evaporation than mulch, even deep mulch. So we want to do it when the soil's wet and when the soil is going to stay wet for a couple months so that that stuff that goes down there can begin the process of breaking down right away and so that the things that are not cut can handle having the shade removed. And so the trees that we've chopped We'll have enough time to adjust and, and begin regrowth. If we go out in Texas and we start coppicing or pollarding these support trees in, in July, many of them aren't going to survive. They're not going to make it. Some of them will. Some of them won't. But a lot of them won't. But if we do it in, let's say, November... Right, And then they have the cool of winter, many of them are deciduous anyway and we're going to drop. They have all that wet spring, all that cool weather, and they're going to come into regrowth in the late spring. They're, most of them are going to survive and we're going to do it again and again and again. Until eventually some of them go, I can't do it anymore. You've done this to me too much and they'll give up and they'll die. Some of them will actually have to physically decide, okay, the apple, the pear, the, the pecan, or whatever that's part of this guild has matured to a level where it doesn't need you anymore. and We have to go in there and take it out at the, at, at the base. Some of them will survive. Some of them will allow to survive. They'll become part of the, you know, the total, the, the canopy layer. But we might start out with 10 support trees to every one fruit tree. And when we end, we might have three or four fruit trees to every one support tree, right? That's when the, 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 the system is mature, 10, 15 years in. And we're slowly taking them out over time. Some of them give up the ghost. Some of them we just decide to take out. Some we might even grow as timber crops. We might grow some support species and eventually train them straight up to grow pole timber for us uh, or fuel timber or whatever. We might put in some timber crops as well and, and not coppice or pollard those and let them grow like, you know, oak or whatever that's long term timber that can be selectively harvested over time. We can pretty much do anything we want there, but we're going to chop and drop when it's wet. Another thing I've been asked a lot is, you know, I talk about seven layers of the forest system. Seven layers, you have a root layer, right? We have a ground cover layer. We have an herbaceous layer. We have a vining climbing layer, right? So these are the climbers, the vines that climb up. We have a shrub layer, which are your, your small trees and shrubs, true shrubs. We have a sub-canopy layer. Those are your dwarf, your smaller trees that canopy out at about 12, 14, 16 feet, depending on what kind of system we're looking at. Sometimes they're just trees that haven't grown up yet. Sometimes they're trees that specifically occupy that space. And we have our canopy layer, our, our mature, overstory forest layer. And one of the questions I get a lot is, well, in that system, once that's built out, how do your herbs and your ground covers grow when they're completely shaded in? And the answer is, in some cases, they don't. In some cases, in a mature forest, when you go inside the forest, there's very little herbal growth or even shrub growth, right? There's some subcanopy and there's clumps of stuff here and there, but it's very, very open and park-like, even though nobody cleared it out. A very mature forest. You walk inside, it's like being inside of a being. And you've got this, this cathedral-like feel. Well, that's because it's mature. Right, so all the way up until that maturity, there's places that light comes through, and these different areas pick up with shrubs and and and, and, and subcanopy and and uh, herbaceous and, and ground covers. But the true abundance is always at the edge. So as you come out to the edge of a forest where it transitions to prairie, that's where you're going to have an abundance of your herbs and your shrubs and your ground covers, and your vining plants. And why? Because they're leading the forest forward. As the forest is maturing and growing outward, they're part of what takes it forward. They're building the soil on the edge, so eventually it can success forward to maturity. So that's one place. Another place you'll find a lot of it, in a lot of forests you'll find glades. You know, you'll know, you find a 10, 10, 10 square meter, 20 square meter, 30 square meter uh, area that's open. A huge monster, You know, father of the forest tree, reached the end of its 800-year life and just died and fell over. And some of the trees that have been waiting to grow up in that area, that ground is now exposed. It needs to be repaired. So in come the troops, the weeds and the shrubs and the herbs and everything. And it starts growing in there. And you get this dense little compact area. You get these unique ecologies that grow in there. And even as a new tree success is over, it's a long time before it occupies that same space. You've got all these trees competing, growing straight and narrow up as fast as you can, and all through these little different edges, all these different spaces come in where your herbs and, and stuff come in. So when you plant a food forest, generally you're planting them along a swale function. It's the best way to do it because it takes care of your irrigation, and most of your herbal stuff as your forest success is forward are going to be further out. We can also, as the architect... Our trees don't have to be anywhere near as dense as a traditional forest. They can be far less dense and that can leave certain openings for our shrubs and our bushes and our herbs. So we can, we can plant a forest garden, you know, of a quarter acre to have a fraction of the mature trees that a true forest ever would. And we can prune and compass and shape those trees the way we want to create a lot of filtered light and and plants that would normally have a hard time getting through summer get this little mini micro forest effect and they're able to grow. So, again, the answer is it depends on what your goals are and how mature the forest is and how big the trees are and how many edges there are. Um, the next one I get a lot of is how do I develop a seed mix for my climate region needs, blah, 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 et cetera. Uh, you know, how, Jack, have you found a seed mix for Arkansas yet? That's like saying, have you found a seed mix for planet Earth? right? So usually when we're doing a seed mix, we're talking about overseeding for cover crop or well, we're doing a huge polyculture, hugel culture bed. We've planted all our main crops in and we want a whole bunch of other stuff. We just throw a bunch of seed in there or, or what have you. And there's all different reasons that we would want a mix of seeds that we just sow out. And we sow in a disturbed soil, or we, you know, we 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 wet the soil and we put it down and we roll it in, or whatever we do to get that soil, you know, get it protected. We mulch over it, pull the mulch back, you know, use like light straw and hay and put that over there, and maybe we pull it back once it starts to come up. If it's more of a pasture type mix, but how do we come up with that mix? And and the the answer is it depends. And but there's certain things we can look at that will help you figure it out. First of all, when do you want to sow your seed mix? And the answer better be fall or spring, because summer and winter in most instances suck. In some places you can get away with it, but in most instances you want to be sowing your winter seed mix in the fall, your summer seed mixes in the spring. That's when it's wet and it's not at the extremes of temperature. Many things that will handle the winter freezes, right, rye and stuff like that, they'll handle it, but they're not going to germinate when it's zero degrees out. So they need to go in in the fall so that they can establish themselves, get their root nets down, et cetera, like that. So here's some questions to ask yourself. When am I going to do this? What grows well in my area? What do I want it to do for me? If I want to choke out all the weeds and have the, the soil prepared well so I can plant into it in the spring, that if I plant something in my fall, like oilseed radish and mustard and other, and, uh, winter pea, uh, and bell bean. I'm going to do just exactly what I wanted. Nothing's going to be there. I can go through and cut that stuff out and I have a well-prepared bed. Okay. If I want to do the same type of thing, but I'm thinking I want, I want this bed ready for the fall. Right. And I want to choke out all the weeds in this bed. And I, I don't really care that much about the yield that comes out of it. I'd like some nitrogen. Well, then I can take red cow pea and buckwheat. Very very simple cover crop mix, about a fifty fifty ratio. And I could sow that out, and between the cowpea and the buckwheat, there won't be a weed standing in that bed. And that buckwheat will mature in six weeks in a, in the warm climate, and it'll begin to die off. It'll begin to die off, and it'll die off right about the time the cowpea's really getting strong and wants more space, because you know it'll it'll be going to seed and. Uh, I can go out there and I can harvest all the seed heads if I want, or I can just leave them there if I'm not worried about them coming back up, and they will come back up. So I got to think about that. The thing is, it, buckwheat when it reseeds in a garden bed—I'm not talking about a pasture, but a garden bed—when uh, you when you have it starting to come up, if you if you don't if you see more of it than you want, you just pull it out. It just pulls out like like nothing. It's it's really easy to get rid of, uh, and then it's more mulch, so it's okay. But when that, that buckwheat's basically done, it's done its deal. The cowpea takes over, and then I might get a yield, and then, you know, I can cut that all that off, and I've got all this green material to use as mulch at that point, mostly from the cowpea because the standing buckwheat will have dried up and, and become useless as mulch at that point, basically. It will be a fraction of its former size. But I have all the cowpea and all the cowpea pods, and maybe the peas for myself or for my chickens or what have you, I can use as mulch. And when I plant into that, there won't be a weed there. There won't because it, the light couldn't get down to them. The the cowpea and the the buckwheat are so aggressive. Well, what if I want uh like free range pasture for my chickens? Well, now I need to look at a combination of things that are perennial that will success by season. So I need things that are going to do well in the spring, the summer, the fall, and the winter, uh as as best I can. So now I need to start looking at what's already growing there, and, and what do I want? So in the in the the winter, you know, so my my fall s- uh, sowing, I might want to plant things like arugula. And chard, uh, and, and anything that's, that's you know, spinaches, any kind of wild greens, miners lettuce, if I can get seed for that, uh, anything that will grow well and either be perennial or self reseed that will handle the cool. And in the, the, the spring planting, I want to plant things that are going to do well going into the summer. So I might put chicory out and I might put out different clovers and things like that. Now the clovers are very, very winter hardy, right? Uh, but they need a long time established. So if I want to plant clover for a fall crop, I need to be looking at planting it probably in most places in August, which means I need to irrigate the hell out of it to get it established before we get So it's all on you. But in any situation, it's actually really easy to figure out. But the big questions are, what's already growing there? What's the soil like? How much irrigation am I going to get? When am I going to be planting this? And what do I want to to produce for me? If I wanted to produce food, I might be making a, a seed mix you know, with carrot and spinach and, and stuff like that, right? Um, you know, Chicory, uh, all kinds of stuff that would be you know, chickweed that, that they can, I can sow in the fall. And some of it will just hold through the winter and come back in the spring. Lamb's quarter, you can sow lamb's quarter anytime you want. As long as it doesn't get eaten by birds or blow away, it'll sit there until it's, it's time and it knows when to show up. So seed mixes are very, very much ask the right questions, but you can always find a good mix. Uh, and if you know what time of year and what climate, then you just start looking at all the things that you like that fit that climate, that space, and that time, and those things fit in there. The next one is, and the last one is today, these are what I call the big ones. Whenever I do anything, there's two questions I get. And I just talked about this a couple times in the video series. Big, big first one is, but what if, right? But what if my land is flat? But what if my land is sandy? But what if this? But what if that? But what if monkeys fly out of my ass and eat my tomatoes? I don't know. But what if? And the answer to that is usually it doesn't matter. As hard as it is to accept, it usually doesn't matter. The, the methodologies used in permaculture are, are designed so that you can tailor them to what you need. Like I've said before, it's like a wardrobe. And if you're going to a black tie affair, then you take out the tux and the black shoes. And if you're going to have beer and pizza at a bar in Pittsburgh, you take out the t-shirt and the jeans. Right. So all of these methodologies have their place and their time and their proper time for implementation. But it usually doesn't matter where you live. It matters what you want. And a swale is a swale is a swale is a swale is a swale. swale. It's a level ditch on contour. It holds water. The water will soak into the land. Your land is not completely flat unless you live in the middle of a salt lake bed. right? And at some point, it does rain. And when it does rain, that water is going to go in there. They put swale ditches in the, the, the American desert during World War II, actually before World War II. Okay, as part of uh, the Civilian Conservation Corps, the put America back to work thing that Roosevelt did. They put these soil dishes all over out there. And uh, there's a, a video that uh, Bill Mollison did back in the 80s, one of his four videos. It was the Global Garden series. I don't remember which one it was, where he's walking through these soil dishes. And these were built in the 30s. No one's done anything with them. They weren't built to create agriculture or plants or anything. They were built because the, the desert was so eroded, because they would go out there and they would irrigate the shit out of it and grow cotton because they needed cotton for the war effort. okay? Right? So they made the desert more of a desert by doing this, and that caused wind to blow all this desert sand and dust across the, the roads, and it made driving conditions dangerous. So they went and put these swale ditches in to stop that, and it worked. But now there's these green strips of forest right through the middle of the desert. right? If it works there, I'm just saying, it'll work in your backyard. So, But what if... not 100%, but 99% of the time, when it comes to permaculture, gardening, things like that, the answer is it doesn't matter, or just keep going, right? Just keep going. So what if I can't grow carrots in the summer? Okay, that's a legitimate concern, but why? They're not designed to grow in the summer. They're a fall, spring crop. So what if, instead of what if, when? So change the question. And you'll, you'll find an answer. Uh, then the next one is, can I? And almost all the time, there's occasionally a dumbass idea, but almost all the time the answer is, go nuts. Can I? You know? If I, if I put my swales in, can I build culture beds in front of them instead of just mounting the soil up? Can I throw some organic matter down before I pile the, yeah. Can I is almost always yes. And what if is almost always it doesn't matter? It's very hard for us to accept because we live in a world where we've been conditioned by our educational system, our government, and the corporations around us to believe that everything is A and B. Everything's a dichotomy. There's a bad and a good, or there's only one right way to do something. Right, And you have to put the right answer on the test, Johnny. And you wonder why your mind struggles with can I is almost always yes, and but what if doesn't always matter. I'll tell you why. You've been programmed through a very brain-dead style of education, a Prussian style of education that we have in this country. That's where this all came from. In the 1800s, in early 1900s, all this crap was imported from Prussia. This, this regimented education system that's designed to create people with a mindset to listen, to follow authority, to always assume that somebody else has a better answer than you, and to always assume that most questions have a single answer. Right, That has been taught to you since you went to or in some cases pre-K. And you got through that system by accepting that reality and putting down what they told you to. And now you're out in a world like nature. That's what permaculture is, is nature. Or survival is nature. You want survival? Go to the forest. It'll teach you all you need to know about survival if it doesn't kill you. Right? And in those worlds, it doesn't work that way. It's not a multiple choice test where it's C-A-B-A-D-A-A-B-C-A. It doesn't work that way. There's a billion variables in your backyard. Let me say that again to drive it home for you. There are a billion variables variables in your backyard. You cannot tie down definitive answers, right? You can come up with definitive rules. Water's always the right angle to contour. The sun comes up in the east, it sets in the west. It's at this angle in the middle of the summer, it's that angle in the middle of the winter. There's a tree right there, that creates shade. When the leaves fall off, the sun comes through. I either accept that and work with it or I remove the tree or I trim the tree to change the shadow that it's casting. Right? I mean, those are, those are definitives. But they lead to billions of variables. So experimentation, observation, application. These will lead you to your answers. And understanding that can I is almost always yes, unless it's, can I jump off the Empire State Building and see if I can fly? And the answer to that is even, uh huh, you can, but it ain't gonna work out real well for you now, is it? Unless you have one of those suits, those people freaking do those cliff jumps with now that are, those guys are crazy, but it's cool. Maybe, maybe that guy could pull it off. Or the people that do the base jumping stuff where they jump off and toss a parachute and then get, or promptly get arrested, right? So th- there's always a way. So can I is almost always, yes. Can I fry cow crap in batter in oil and eat it? You can, but I don't think I would. So what we have to realize is when we say, if I'm going to do something with permaculture or gardening or homesteading, and the question is, can I? The only thing we really need to do is go, well, what's the consequence if it doesn't work? And if the consequence is minor to insignificant, then unless you've already seen 14 people do it and screw it up and it made things worse, give it a shot. You'll learn something from it. You'll learn something from it. And you'll, you might learn what not to do, but you'll learn something from it. And you might actually learn what not to do, but come to an altogether new technique that incorporates what you already knew with what you've learned. This is the critical thinking. This is the thought-based analysis. This is the, the concept that we don't know everything already, so experimentation is key. This is the crap that we don't learn in our school systems anymore. This is the crap that's not encouraged when you sit in an 8-foot-by-8-foot cubicle every day and enter numbers into a spreadsheet. And it, those things have their place to put food on the table for a time being. but when, it, when you when you exit those systems, don't expect to bring the dogma from those systems with you. it will not work. it'll hold you back, it'll hinder you. It'll keep you from accomplishing great things. People ask me it totally, seems totally different uh, different though. Jack, how do you come up with all these because I, I, guys, I'm a badass cook. I am not a classically trained chef. I've learned some things from some classically tra- trained chefs like my partner, Neil, like Keith Snow, techniques that have made my cooking better. But basically, people who come like, How? I make these different marinades for chicken and beef and stuff. People go, that's amazing. I did one last night, or not last night, the night before that we did chicken wings with it. My wife was, this is the most amazing thing I've ever eaten. And it was so simple. I'll tell you in a future episode, we're almost done here today. But it involved a lot of garlic and a food and a a blender, a Vitamix. That was the big base of it. And and, and say, how do you come up with this stuff? And it's because I put stuff together that's not in a recipe anywhere else. And sometimes it doesn't taste real good. And sometimes, and I'll take things that have a basic like, okay, an Asian base, right? So it's got it's got you know uh, coriander. And it's got fish sauce and some sort of a sugar and chili and garlic and shallots. But then I'll maybe throw some like a fusion thing in there. But I'll just say, you know, what would cumin do to this? And sometimes cumin does great things to something and sometimes it's like it's really out of place. But I just try it. And I've made stews with chicken, pork, and beef in them and sausage. I made a stew with all of that in it. Nobody does that. But yet it was really good because I wasn't afraid to try it. You know, and that I think is what we need to learn. If unless the cons are somebody's going to get hurt, sick, or dead, or we're going to starve because we can't, you know, we can always take a piece of land. Even if we're, even if we're a farmer, you know, that's farming 40 acres to pay the bills. We can always put a half acre aside for experimentation and development and research. And we might learn something there that becomes more valuable than the other 39 and a half acres if we'll embrace the spirit that we had as children, that is, why, how, can I? Not what if. Not what if. You know what? Kids only ask what if when they're trying to sell an adult on ideas, right? When, when they're left to be kids, the big question they ask is, why and can I? Think that way. And you'll probably develop something that no one else ever thought of over time. And it's, it's really exciting when, you, when you're the person doing that. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap things up today. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days. You know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like, there's nothing I could do. It's the price we pay, I guess. And we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.